has. In light of what we've just sung, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful for the opportunity to gather as family, to have this word that is a word and revelation from you and about your son, Jesus. And we do ask that you would speak to us through it directly. Tune our hearts to hear and our hearts to sing your praise as we reflect what we read, study, and put it into practice. By your grace and your strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Thanksgiving night, after all of the company had made their way out of their out of our house, um, kind of heading back to their own homes, and the kitchen was somewhat subdued. You know, it's like kind of partially cleaned up after a big meal and a lot of company. Shannon and I, and really, I think maybe the whole family, sat down for a minute in the den. I was on the couch and turned on the game. It was pretty late in the evening, and thinking I was just going to watch a little bit of football, I found myself kind of getting drawn into a commercial, and a commercial about a large family enjoying their own Thanksgiving dinner, and, and specifically the commercial seemed to kind of center around the relationship between this, I'm going to say very senior adult, matriarch and patriarch of the family, right? So in no time, Shan and I have been taken from the triviality of the football field to maybe one of the most poignant and sad commercials of the season, certainly one of the most sad things I've seen in commercial form in a long time. And, and I frankly found myself at the end of that commercial uh, not only hoping that the game would be the next thing on the screen, but I found myself kind of strongly tempted. I know this is going to shock you, but strongly tempted to trade in Dolly the Dodge Ram, 23-year-old pickup truck, may she live forever, toward a Chevy Silverado or whatever it was they were selling on that commercial. In some ways, it's a little bit like what our passage is going to do this morning. For weeks we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, and week after week, each narrative has been about Jesus. In fact, there are only two narratives in the whole book of Mark that are not about Jesus, and both of those are about his forerunner, John the Baptist. In chapter 1, we saw the first time we were introduced to a narrative about John the Baptist was Mark chapter 1, and in that chapter, we saw John as the forerunner of Jesus' mission, his message, and his ministry. But today we're going to see John as the forerunner of Jesus' death. So with what may feel like a jarring interruption into what we've been studying in this gospel narrative all about Jesus, Mark takes a moment to recount the tragic and frankly gruesome death of John the Baptist. And it's intentionally placed to get our attention, just like I've said so let's jump in where first we're going to discover this guilty conscience that is front and center. So here's the, here's the text. We're at John, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. 
a guilty conscience. Notice what it says in verse 14. We'll read the whole thing, but I'll do it in bursts like I've been doing on these longer narratives that we're studying. Here's what it says. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now, throughout our study, we've, we've seen how Jesus' ministry, his miracles, his message was spreading throughout all of the kingdom. And, and now we see that it spread so far that it's even reached into the palace. Frankly, one of the last places spiritual things are going to be reaching, much less discussed and talked about it. And as outsiders looking in, Herod and his inner circle was forced to, to kind of guess who this man Jesus was that everyone was talking about. And notice what they say. Here's what some said. Verse 14, the second half of 14. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers were at work in him. And, 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 and I'll just say that this would not have been a bad guess among people in the palace. I mean, in the ancient world, there would have been this belief that the resurrection, and I put this in quotes, but that resurrection was a sign of impending judgment, right? And, and the fact that there was a man out there doing all kind of miraculous things that everyone was talking about could have sealed the deal in their opinions and in their minds, right? Listen, everyone in the palace knew that if there was someone who was going to be the recipient of such judgment, it was the guy beside them heading up the things in their land. Look at verse 15. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And, and you know, maybe this was an attempt to steer the discussion away from the deserved judgment. So they're saying things like, hey, some say Elijah, like the prophets of old. It reminds me of when the, the, the conversation changed, right, to divert from something that was being discussed. When, when Shan was pregnant with our firstborn, we had every desire to be surprised by the, at the gender at the birth. And Shan was going to see this group of doctors in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and every time she would go, she'd see a different doctor so that on the time of the birth, we would have met all of the doctors. So the first doctor, they do whatever kind of ultrasound they're doing, and, and that doctor knew immediately what the gender was. And, and they said, hey, we, we really don't want to know the gender. I said, that's okay. I'll just put a little mark right here on her chart. I said, it's fine. So the next time, we, um, we come in the next month for an appointment, and this, this young doctor comes in, and it's the next one. His name, I'll never forget it, Tim Stone was the doctor. And he, he opens up that door and swings in, and they've got these little chairs, cool backless chairs with wheels on it. And you can hit those things and roll right across the room, and that's what it did. Grab the folder, hit that stool, and just drove right on into the room, opens it up and says, so, we're having a little girl. And Shannon went, and he went, or it could be a boy. <laughs> so maybe these guys in the castle are saying, hey, some people say it could be Elijah, like one of the prophets of old. And after a while, maybe this too isn't all that far-fetched, because after 400 years of silence from any kind of prophetic voice, there was quite a fascination with the prophets among those people, right? Especially one of the power and authority that people were talking about this man Jesus has. But Herod 
whose conscience had been eaten, eating at him ever since the, that fateful day, settled the debate with his own admission of guilt. You've seen what others had said, now check out um, what he says. Actually, let me interrupt. Because before we move on to see what Herod said, I just want to point out a piece of application for us that's important for all of us in this room to grapple with. Questions of who Jesus was would not be limited to the palace. Later on in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to ask his own disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And they repeated some of the exact same things that we've just read in this that were discussed in the palace. And they said, hey, you know, some people say John the Baptist and, and others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. And people all around were saying great things about Jesus. People all around were saying remarkable things about Jesus. They were holding Jesus in high regard and held high opinions about him. Just like people today might say things like, you know, I believe that Jesus was a great teacher. And in fact, he was a great, great man. Having a high opinion of Jesus is not the same thing as having faith in Jesus. Jesus pointed it straight back to his own disciples and asked the question that really stands as one of the most important questions for us all to grapple with, and it's this. But who do you say that I am? And answering on behalf of all of them, Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, the important thing to grapple with is not what other people think about Jesus or even what other people say about Jesus, but what you think. And this sets the table for us to hear Herod's remark. Notice what he says. But when Herod heard it, verse 16, he says, John, whom I beheaded has been raised. Now, in spite of the fact that someone else had clearly been pulling the strings, Herod emphatically claimed responsibility for John's death. All the while, the fame of Jesus is spreading and admiration for John was growing. Herod had not dethroned John's influence when he decapitated his head. Mark then goes on to recount the details of John's death, and I want you to see what led to John's death. Verses 17 through 20. Point number two, if you're taking and keeping notes, is a nursed grudge. A nursed grudge. Notice this dysfunctional family in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. If that's confusing, it probably ought to be, right? I mean, seriously, had the Jerry Springer show been around in the first century, Herod's family could have probably been featured in the best of catalog and been on um, quite regularly. The Herod of our story is one of the sons of Herod the Great. Let me give you a little family tree here. Herod's dad, 
His name was great, but his behavior was diabolical. This is Herod the Great I'm talking about. Herod the Great had ten wives. He had many kids from those wives, three of which he put to death out of fear of treason by them against his rule on the throne. He was the Herod that ordered the slaughter of all of the baby boys that were two years old and younger in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region at the time that Jesus was born. So if you want to look at the bookends of Jesus' life, you have a Herod at the very beginning of it, you'll have a Herod at the very end of his earthly life, but not of obviously his end because Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, knows no end. But the Herod in our story, he became the governor of a fourth of Herod the king's great upon Herod the, king, Herod the great's death. Herod the great changed his will in the last bit of his life and changed it from going to one heir to being divided into four and then ruled and governed by, all, by four different children from his lineage. That's why Herod is known and referred to as Herod the Tetrarch. Tetra meaning four. He was a ruler, a governor of a fourth of the kingdom. His given name was Antipas, and he was originally, here's where it gets a little convoluted, more convoluted. He was originally married to the daughter of an Arabian king, but took a fancy to his brother's wife, who was also his niece by way of um, the descendants of Herod the Great, and divorced his wife, went and um, claimed as his own wife, Philip's wife, so that you have this whole mess of a system going on. Verse 17 kind of gives the rest of the story and tells us that Herod, Herod Antipas, the Herod of our story, had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. And notice why. For the sake of Herodias. Herodias is the name of his now wife, second wife, the ex-wife of Philip. This cannot go on, right? So notice what happens in verse 18. There is prophetic boldness. Verse 18 says this, For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I'm just going to give you a, a, a quick step back into the Old Testament because to take your brother's wife was against God's law except when it was done in keeping with leveret law. The word lever actually refers to brother-in-law and nothing to do with Levi, which are the first four letters of the word, right? But the Leveret law made provision for the widow whose husband died before there were any sons born to their family. In that case, it was lawful, not only lawful, but honorable for the brother-in-law to step in and take her in marriage so as to produce an heir for her on behalf of the deceased brother. Okay? The only reason I tell you all that is to reiterate what Herod and Herodias had done was neither lawful nor honorable. And John, the last of the prophets of God, spoke boldly 
against it as sin. John and Herod form this perfect picture of contrast. You've got John's righteousness and piety contrasted with Herod's paranoia, really, and his ruthlessness. So with all of that going on, how could such a man like John the Baptist, the final prophet of the living God, when, when John the Baptist was thrust into prison, Jesus' ministry started. The prophetic ministry of the Old Testament came to an end at the conception of Jesus' ministry. So how could a man such as John turn a blind eye to such sin, even if it would mean that it would be returned with such volatility? He had to know, this might not end well with me. You know, there, are, there will be smarter ways for my ministry to, uh, to keep going than to get in front of Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, and say, your life is a living model of sin. Stop it. You're dishonoring God. John's prophecy and his boldness presents really a couple lessons for us. And I want to point them out. I'm, I've decided this week to insert application points instead of at the end, all throughout. So here's one of those. Our society, the world really, but our society is in desperate need for preachers as well as believers in the pew who know, uphold, and stand for the absolute truth claims of the Bible even in the midst of a climate that has so openly and proudly, as Herod and Herodias have done, rejected it. A lack of righteous anger on behalf of the Holy One and our families, and our churches, and our societies have suffered as a result. Second point of application that I just want to point out while we're here. As members of the church, it is so important to retain the openness to receive correction when confronted with sin so that it might be dealt with. What would have happened had Herod said, you're right. King David benefited from Nathan's boldness, and Herod could have benefited from John's. Why is David, who was such a great sinner, seen as a man after God's own heart? Because he was equally a great repenter if you'll let me make up that word. <laughs> you and I forfeit the benefit that we would experience if we would, if we would refuse the rejection of correction. Like when we, when we reject correction, we forfeit the benefit that we would experience as opposed to if we would receive correction with humility, and instead of harboring a grudge or being defensive, we would walk in the newness of life that comes as a result of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it is a good wound 
When a wound comes from a faithful friend, when that wound is meant to restore. But Herodias's rejection became a model for Herod as well. And Herodias rejected John's rebuke, and Herod likewise allowed other things to get into his way, right? So notice what happens next in verse 19. You see this, this idea of safekeeping. Here's what the passage says, 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. That's quite a grudge, people. But she could not, and here's why. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, so in other words, he would make these regular visits to hear John say whatever it was he would say. And when he would hear him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. So see this fine line that John, I'm sorry, that Herod is walking in. As in the same way, think Old Testament with me for a second. As Jezebel had it in for Naboth, Herodias had it in for John the Baptist. Herod, however, feared both John the Baptist and Herodias, his wife. And this is a place that cannot, you, you can't serve two masters in this thing. You can't be pleasing the people while seeking also to please the Lord, making wise decisions. They're incongruent, those two things are. Herod was definitely between a rock and a hard place. Or, or frankly, better yet, you could say, Herod tried to exist between his conscience and what the Lord was trying to do in his life through John the Baptist which was drawing him potentially to repentance. Look at the passage. When he heard John, he greatly was perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Something's going there. It's not just entertainment value at this point, but he's trying to live in between these worlds of his conscience and what's drawing him, as well as he's trying to coexist within his environment, which was destroying him. Think in the New Testament, the words of Jesus. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Herod kept John safe by keeping him in prison. And it would be from a prison that he would ask one of the most sad questions I think found in the New Testament. I'll give you a little spoiler here, as you know. John would never leave that prison alive. But I want to point out this question that he asked from the prison that he was imprisoned in by Herod. Matthew chapter 11 records the question, and it also records Jesus' reply. And it is why we read the first portion of public script, the public reading of Scripture this morning from Isaiah chapter 61. He records his reply to John the Baptist, or he, he sends his reply, and the reply that he gives and sends to John the Baptist, who's in prison, is drawn directly from what we saw 
was what he read from a scroll eight months prior when he is asked to read in the synagogue in Nazareth, a place that rejected him. Right? So you're keeping all those things in mind. And now John is in prison, and he asks this question to Jesus. Jesus sends a reply by basically quoting and paraphrasing from what he had read in the synagogue in Nazareth, which we read from Isaiah 61. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, here's the question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And can I just kind of pause just for a second there? This is a guy whose birth is coupled with the birth of our Savior in that they're both miraculous births. Jesus born to a virgin. John the Baptist born to a couple that is long since past the age of childbirth. John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit since the day of his birth, frankly his conception, and had as a singular purpose to make ready the way of the Lord. John the Baptist, who lived his life under the law of the Nazarite, who was the picture of being set apart. John the Baptist, who lived a life of humility, when seeing Jesus approach, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, who lived his life of humility, when asked of Jesus to baptize him, says, I need to be baptized by you. John the Baptist, this guy who epitomized humility in service and honor to the Lord, said this, he must increase about Jesus, and I must decrease. And now, what do I get back as a payback for boldly speaking out the claims of Christ? Life in a prison. I'm not sure he's thinking all those things. But one has to wonder on this side of reading Mark and Matthew. Wow, what a rocking question this is. I feel the end of my life is near. Disciples, you've brought me my lunch. There's no three square meals in the prison in Jesus' day. You eat what your friends brought you. And their friends brought him that, and he sends back with them a question. Ask Jesus. Are you the one? And is this worth it? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. And you'll, here's where you'll recognize the words that Jesus is about to share um, that he had read from the scroll in Nazareth. Here it is. He says, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor of good news preached to them. And then he said this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Interesting that something is omitted from what he sent back as a word to John the Baptist, who's in prison. The one thing that Jesus has omitted from this list that, we, that he actually came to fulfill is this, liberty to the captives. Now we'll tell you that John would not be liberated from his earthly prison 
captivity. I will also emphatically say, spiritually, Jesus did come to set the captives free. In Christ, the bonds of sin and death are broken for every person who trusts Christ by faith. But faith in Christ is not equal to a get-out-of-jail-free card while we're here on earth. For the true Christian, the best is yet to come. J.C. Ryle writes this, Their rest, their crown, their wages, their reward are all on the other side of the grave. Remember where this passage is situated, Mark's passage. Jesus himself would not avoid the cross. Eleven of the twelve apostles who had been sent out on mission and will in the next section of text report back on their ministry. Eleven of those twelve apostles would die a martyr's death. And John would not avoid the sword. But his ministry, life, effectiveness, calling, miraculous birth as the forerunner of Jesus was not voided because his earthly life ended in what you and I would say, huh, I wonder if it was a mistake to say this. Or, huh, I wonder if God let him down. Or, huh, I wonder... Follow along, starting at verse 21 as we kind of walk through quickly this twisted plot that unfolds. Because opportunity is knocking. Verse 21, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his neighbors, I'm sorry, nobles, and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. You're supposed to see the importance of the crowd that's there. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. Think about this. I mean, the time has finally arrived for Herodias, Herod's wife, to finally pull the strings she's been waiting to pull. When Herod, who is now surrounded by people that he wants to impress, and all, frankly, probably, we're pretty well hydrated, if you're following my gist here. Herodias threw her daughter to the dogs. Readers of Mark, especially in the early centuries, would have known that daughters of nobility would have never danced in public like this. But like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And both Herodias and her daughter were void of this virtue. But the pleasing dance led to a hasty vow that was made. Look at verse 22, and I'm going to read all the way through 28. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, 
Well, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked. And notice how she adds her own little spin to the, to the request. I want you to give to me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. The only other time we'll see that expression in the New Testament is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with a heavy heart. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Notice verse 26. Verse 26 tells us that Herod was exceedingly sorry. But check this. His flesh had sprung a trap that his pride would not allow him to release through repentance. It is so common for people then, today, and it will be tomorrow. But it is so common for people to care more about their reputation than their eternity. Please. Please do not let the opinion of others keep you from submitting to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and giving your life completely to Christ today. Little did Herod know that with his own self-preserving vow, he was actually leading John to his ultimate freedom and final reward. In an instant, John the Baptist's faith would become sight and the temptation to ask, are you the one? Would be gone forever. Such is the promise for all who are in Christ. Prison cells may still exist. Ministries may ebb and flow like John the Baptist did. But our position, placement, and identity in Christ will last forever, as the Scriptures do. Notice finally, this wild risk that was taken. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I'm pretty taken by this sentence. Joining the ranks of the mighty men of the Old Testament and even Joseph of Arimathea at Jesus' grave or death. Now these men take on the risk of entering into a space and showing their loyalty and allegiance to the one whose head has just been severed. This was a risky proposition for John's disciples to undertake, but like their leader, who had not been a slave to political correctness, neither would they be slaves to fear 
with the exception of the fear of the Lord. My plan is to end this message as abruptly as it feels like it started. We're reading a book about Jesus and all of a sudden we see this. Lord willing, you have heard my application points throughout. You've also heard gospel invitations that have, I hope, been interwoven throughout the text this morning as the text gave rise to them. But I don't want you to let either of those be swept away with the closure of this service and this sermon without responding as the Lord would have you to do so. A couple prompts for your prayer time as we sing. Is the Lord calling you this morning to trust Him by faith? If so, would you respond by faith and trust in Jesus who stood in as our substitute so that we might have life with no fear of what is to come or no fear of what is to come after we take our last earthly breath? Second thing, is the Lord calling you to die to your need for approval of friends? Maybe the fear of man is more alive in you than you realize. And as you think about Herod's wrestling match between these worlds that he tried to coexist in, and as this passage kind of lies down upon our hearts, If that's part of the issue the Lord is drawing to your attention and to your heart, would you quit trying to coexist and find your space in a path that is narrow, but that is straight? Number three, and finally, is the Lord revealing to you that you, like David, are a great sinner? But you need to start today to be a great repenter. If that's you and it's all of us, would you take the opportunity even as we're singing and and hopefully, Lord willing, responding in humility and faith that you might find your glory not in the approval of others, not in the evaluation of ministry, not in the evaluation of your family or whatever it is that looms large on your evaluation list, but that you might find your glory in Christ, the Holy One. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. Grace as such that we were pursued by you through your son Jesus.
He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Lord, I don't want the familiarity with that truth to be lost on us. But I pray, Lord, that it would reach all of our hearts as we find in Him our greatest joy and satisfaction and run from the trappings of the world that would attempt to trap us and lure us in things that do not pay off. Lord, if any of us are on that trajectory, that downward slide that Herod found himself in where his conscience had, you were pricking his conscience all along and he kept rejecting it for other things until it's at some point as, as the rest of the gospel portrays that conscience became seared. Lord, protect us from that. Soften our hearts to be receptive and responsive Make us open to correction, primarily from your Spirit, but secondarily as a good gift and grace from our brothers and sisters in the Lord who might be a Nathan to us. And give us the hearts, not of Herod, but of David, to respond to you in kind. Lord, this is my prayer, and I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our rest is not.